If you have your Bible this morning, turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. I'm so glad that you're here with us this morning. We're looking at a series of messages on the Son of God. Who is the Son of God? There's a movie out. Uh, somebody asked me again this week if I've seen it. I, I, my response is still the same. I read the book. This is, this is the one that I go to, and uh, uh, I meant to go see it, and I have meant to go see it, and yet I keep reading the book, and I love what I'm, what I'm reading there. We're talking about being free today. We're talking about what it means to be free. Have you ever understood what freedom is really like? I, I read this week an article, True Story, October 4th, 2011. Michael uh, Morton was exonerated. He was freed by a Texas judge on the basis of DNA evidence. He'd been in prison since 1986 for 25 years. He was convicted of in 1986 of killing his wife, of murdering his wife, Christine. His three-year-old son was in the house at the time of the murder, and he said somebody from outside came and hurt his mommy and made her cry and then made her stop talking. There was a bloody bandana that was found at the time. No DNA testing was ever done on it. No blood tests were ever done on it. The boy was never allowed to, uh, to be a witness at the trial because he was too young. For 25 years, his son tried to get his dad freed. In April of 2011, they did a DNA test, and the woman's blood was on the bandana, as well as the DNA of another man. And when they looked to find who the other man was, they found that he had been convicted in 1988 of four other murders. For 25 years, Michael Morton was in prison. The reporter asked the stupidest question ever. What does it feel like? to be out of jail when they exonerated him, when they freed him, when they found him. They, they, they literally reversed all of the sentence against him, took away everything from his record. And this is what he said, and I quote, I did not know freedom could feel this good. That's mind-boggling to me that someone would spend 25 years in prison, and yet it's not mind-boggling because I've seen people spend 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 60 or 70 or 80 years in prison by sin. And our Lord Jesus Christ offers us the same mind-boggling freedom that Michael Morton got. And so many people have never taken the offer. It would be as if they came to Michael Morton and said, the DNA test is in, you are free. And he said, I think I'll just stay in prison for a while. There's no chance that that would ever happen. And, that, and yet that's what we do. We're offered freedom from God that's mind-boggling. Look at in Luke chapter 13, verse 12. There's a story, Jesus comes in to a place, a woman has been bound by this infirmity. She's literally been bowed over, she's been bent over double, she can't see up. And when Jesus saw her, it says in Luke 13, 12, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. And when she stood up for the first time in all, I believe, her, of her adult life, after 18 years of being bound over by this disease, by this sin, by whatever it was that was holding her down that Jesus freed her from, people were astonished at that. And they should be. But they missed the bigger point. Because that's an illustration that physical healing was just an illustration of a bigger truth, that God has come to set us free. 
here's where we're going with this. Jesus used his freedom to purchase my freedom. The reason that we're looking at the Son of God, we're seeing the things that Jesus had in his life and how they apply to us. And so let's, let's look at that. In Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, in what vital ways, in what essential ways, important ways was Jesus free? I think sometimes we forget about this. The Son of God came to us completely and totally free. Look at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And by the way, I could have had 16 points under this, but I didn't. I I tried to limit it to three. Take a look at what it says. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, that's the place where Peter was, was, had his headquarters for his fishing uh, enterprise, Capernaum. Uh, If you go with us next March, I'll show you where it is. I'll show you Peter's house. I'll show you where this happened. The people heard that he had come home. That's where his center, his base of operations was, verse 2. So many gathered there, so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he, that is Jesus, preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. Now get the picture again. In in New Testament times, they had these homes mostly built out of rocks and stones on the sides. They would put some beams across the top. Sometimes they would put clay tiles. We find from Luke that that's what happened here. They would put some clay tiles, but the tiles leaked. And so then they would take thatch or straw or whatever, and usually some mud, and they would seal the, the, uh, the tiles around the edges, and then they would put the thatch over it so that when it rained in Israel about the same way that we get rain. We get it for a few months and then it doesn't rain again for a long time. When that rain came, it would roll off the roof. And every year they would have to renew this. So it wasn't a huge deal for them to open up the roof. But it was quite unusual when you had a meeting there, when you're having a dinner party, to have somebody come through the roof. And look at what it says in verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, Your sins are forgiven. The last thing they expected Jesus to say. Look at verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're thinking in their minds. They're thinking in their hearts. They're they're getting all riled up inside. Look at verse 8. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, now get this. He said all of this to them, but then it changes. He said to the paralytic, It's as if he's turned one way, and in the middle of his talk, he turns and he says to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Stop right there. Don't read verse 12. I know you want to do it. Just come on, stop. In what vital ways was Jesus free? First of all, here's here's the first freedom that Jesus had. Jesus was free to explain the truth. Jesus was free to explain the truth. Jesus was, was riding a wave of, of popular support. If we look back in Mark, in Mark chapter 1, we can see that he healed a, a, a leper 
And what he told the leper is, whatever you do, don't tell anybody. Whatever you do, just go home and be quiet about it. Go show the priests. Go back to your family. You, you've been isolated for all this time. Just go back and whatever you do, don't tell anybody. And how well did the leper do? He didn't just tell one person. He told everybody. It says that he did not stop. The Greek is, is, is clear about this. You couldn't shut him up. But if you have been... Ex, uh, uh, if, if you literally have been ostracized from the rest of your family, if, if you have been exited out of the city so that you have to live by yourself away from your family, and all of a sudden you're healed, and they see you back with the family, and they say, what happened? What are you going to say? This man, Jesus, he healed me. So he's, he's got this popular support, and he comes to Peter's home. It's the base of operation. It's Capernaum. They know him well. And Jesus is inundated with these people. I mean, he's just, the, the room is so full, the house is so full, it's not a big, huge place anyway. I literally can show you the home that they believe was Peter's home in Capernaum. And, and, and you can see it, and you can, and you can realize it wasn't that big. In Luke 5, 17, it says, The Pharisees and the teachers of the law from every village in Galilee and from Judea and from Jerusalem were there. What does that mean? It means that this wasn't just a few people. I mean, when it says there were some religious leaders there, I think that Jesus was so surrounded by these experts of the law. David Garland, who is a, a Bible scholar, says the religious leaders were experts in Old Testament law. They were custodians of sacred tradition. They saw their task as establishing clear-cut guidelines and boundaries for the people. It was the, the Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders that decided what was acceptable and what was unacceptable to God in every sphere of life, get this, so that the people might live in accord with God's will and in so doing could earn their salvation. Sometimes we, we misuse the word Pharisee. You know, we've gotten to this point of, oh, if that person is critical, then they're a Pharisee. That's not what he's talking about. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, they had come to the point where they missed what happened with Abraham. They miss what happened when it says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. They miss what happened when it says that David was a man after God's own heart. And David says, Lord, it's not the sacrifices you want, but the sacrifices of God are, are, are a broken and contrite heart. It was all about faith. They miss that. And there are people today still that miss it. And they say, oh, in the Old Testament, you were saved by the law. In the New Testament, you were saved by grace. I, I've got shocking news for you. In the Old Testament, you look forward to the cross. In the New Testament, they looked at the cross. And from us, we look back at the cross. It's all about the cross. It's always been about Jesus. And the Pharisees missed it. And when Jesus had the opportunity of addressing them, what does he do? It says he, he preached the word. Now, how well received do you think that was? They were the experts of the law. What did Jesus say? Did Jesus go back and, and talk about Micah? Did he go back to, to Isaiah 1, 18? Did, did, he, did he go to Isaiah? There were so many other places. Did he say, I'm Isaiah 53 in, in person? Where did he go? We don't know, but he told the truth. Was it well received? There's another time that he was sitting in a synagogue. Not in Capernaum, but in Nazareth. And he was sitting in the seat of Moses. And again, you can see that. 
In, in Luke chapter 4, 18, it gives the description because they hand him a scroll. It's open to Isaiah 61, and this is what Jesus reads. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the, Lord, the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops. He stops mid-sentence because the next part of that talks about when the Lord comes back the next time. This first part is about the Messiah in the first coming. The second part of that passage, the reason he stops mid-sentence, literally in the middle of this sentence, is because he knows the rest of that prophecy will apply when Jesus comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he stops in the middle of that. And then Jesus says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. When the Pharisees and the Sadducees that day in Nazareth begin to question him about it, he says, listen, you guys missed it. And he says, don't you get it? In the Old Testament, there was this widow in Zarephath. There were all these people in Israel that could have taken Elijah, could have helped him out, but it was this widow of Zarephath, and it was, it was this woman who was outside of Israel who understood grace. And then he goes on to give another illustration. There were all these Jews that could have come to have healing, but it was Naaman the Syrian general who came and got healed because there was not the faith in Israel. And they took Jesus out to the edge of a cliff in Nazareth and tried to throw him over the cliff. I've stood on the cliff. I've seen where this happened. Jesus told the truth. He was free to tell the truth. And here's the truth. Jesus is salvation. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Sounds arrogant. It sounds horrible, except for one thing, if it's true. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Salvation is through Jesus Christ. Salvation is by grace through faith. It's not what we do. It's by grace. Here's the second thing. Jesus was free to forgive sins. Of all the things that Jesus could have said when they lowered the paralytic, the last thing that they thought he would talk about was sins. Jesus knew what this man did not know. He had a bigger problem than being paralyzed from the neck down. His biggest problem was not his physical problem. His biggest condition was not that condition of paralysis. The main problem in every person's life, now get this, the main person in every person's life is not suffering, it is sin. When I say that, that sounds offensive. When I say that, that sounds simplistic. But because when I, when I talk about that, and I know that there are Christians today that are being martyred in Africa, and I know that there are Christians today in India that, that that they have no food. I, I know that there are people around the world that, that food is a huge issue, and you think if we can just give them food, then we can bring them the gospel. And Jesus said, bring them the gospel first. It, it's not that you're not aware of their other needs, but their greatest need is salvation. And it's really empowering, because you can't do a lot about your circumstances sometimes. Somebody said to me just this week, just this week, I, I scraped my head again. I, I don't know why I do. Well, I do know why I do that. There's no cushion up there. There's nothing to warn me that something is going to scrape it. So I scraped the top of my head, and they saw that it was scraped, and they said, does it bother you that you're bald? And I said, I'm bald? I didn't know that. Now, of course it doesn't. I mean, I started losing my hair when I was 23. 
I warned my boys when they got about 12, enjoy the hair. It won't be there long. Why would that bother me? I mean, literally, it's been something that I've been dealing with most of my life. It, it, praise God. <laughs> Vaughn said amen, but I, I needed to hear about 25 others, but I don't want to go there. You can't change much about what happens to us. But here's something that God can change. God can make me a sinner saved. He can forgive my sins, and he can forgive your sins. And the reason the religious leaders were so upset about this, that a priest could for, for pronounce forgiveness, he could say on the behalf of someone else, based on their repentance and their restitution, their sacrifice, he could say, God forgives you, but they could not say, I forgive you. And Jesus was not just addressing our sinful actions. I, I mean, again, there's this man per, uh, paralyzed, and, and how many bad sins could he do? How many horrible things? Max Lucado says all the worst sins because they're all the sins of the mind. You can't move your hands, you can't move your feet, but you, your mind can lust, your lips can lie. All of the worst sins can be there when you're stretched out and you can't move a muscle. And Jesus knew this and he forgave his sins. And he was, re he was really addressing our sin nature that's within us. It's our rebellion. It's, it's, it's saying that we can live without reference to God. And when Jesus was saying, your sins are forgiven, he's actually saying, your sins which wronged me have been forgiven. Your sins which wronged me have been forgiven. And since we sin against God, only God can forgive. Now, let me illustrate this. I want Vaughn and Debbie to stand up. I, I talked to them beforehand. This is not totally unannounced to them, although if you sit down in the front, you never know. Now, this is Vaughn and Debbie Cartwright. Vaughn is the one who said, praise God, uh, amen, over the, the bald head. I don't know why he would say that. There's a few others out there. Now, let's say that Debbie said, did something horrible to Vaughn. Debbie, make a fist and just hit Vaughn as hard as he can in his... <laughs> okay. If, if Debbie did hit... She would never do that, the sweet person that she is. Go ahead and hit him. Just clobber him once. <laughs> he, has a, he has a sore shoulder. Debbie... I forgive you. Does that work? Why? Because she didn't hit me. Thanks, guys. You can be seated. The truth is, the reason that I can't forgive Debbie's sins or anybody else's sins is that they weren't against me. You get that? The reason Jesus could say, I forgive your sins, your sins are forgiven, is because every sin is against God. David in Psalm 51, when he is committed adultery with Bathsheba, when he has murdered Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, says in Psalm 51, against you, Father, against you, God, and you only have I sinned. And when we finally grasp that, that Jesus is the only one free to forgive our sins, it's the greatest news ever. The bad news is that we are slaves to sin, but the greatest news is that the only person who's ever been free to forgive us was Jesus Christ. And he offers that forgiveness. John uh, verse eight, uh, chapter 8, 36 says, So if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Here's the third thing that we learn from this. Jesus was free to explain the truth. He was free to forgive sins. And Jesus is free to examine our hearts. 
He knew the hearts of those four guys, the four friends who brought him. He, he saw their faith by their actions. The actions just demonstrated what was in their heart. They wanted their friend to be healed. They wanted this paralysis to be gone. They thought this was their last chance, and they would do whatever it took to get their friend to see Jesus, and he knew their heart. He knew the heart of the paralytic. He knew the heart of the paralytic. The paralytic was thinking, if only I could walk, everything would be all right. I mean, he knew the hearts of the, of the religious leaders, and it says here that, that he knew that because he knew that they questioned Jesus' ability. See, anyone can say, anyone can say, I forgive you. Anyone can say, I, can, I, I forgive you of sins, but not everyone could heal. It's like the old saying, we, it even came up in Sunday school. I, I was saying something, I was kind of bragging to someone when I was in high school. I, I, you know, I thought I was a fairly decent football player, and I said, man, if they just start me, things would be totally different on this team. If they would let me start as tackle, things would be totally different. And one of the guys that was playing football said, don't let your mouth write a check, your body can't cash. You think about that. And he was right, they did let me start that next game. That's the, the week that I blew my knee out and ended my season, pretty much ended my football career. You see, you, sometimes we say things that we really can't back up. And Jesus knew that. And so in order to clarify his authority, he says, I'll prove I can forgive sins by healing. What's the implication? It's harder to heal than it is to forgive sins. But that's not really the truth. It's infinitely harder. It's infinitely harder to forgive the sins of everyone because Jesus had to go to the cross to do that. He had to die in my place and your place. It is infinitely more difficult to affect the forgiveness of sins than it is to heal. What was Jesus really saying? You know what Jesus was saying? I don't want to just be a healer. I want to be your savior. I don't want to just be your healer. I don't want to be just a miracle worker. I want to be your savior. In Psalm 139, look at what it says. This should be our response. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. In Deuteronomy 18, there's a test of a prophet. If a prophet says, I can do something, and he does not do it, then he's a false prophet and needs to be put to death. And Jesus said, I can heal, and he did heal. Here's the other end of this. In what vital ways was Jesus free? And here's the second part. In what vital ways will Jesus set me free? Go back to Mark chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For the four of you who did not read chapter, uh, verse 12. Let's read it now. Okay, verses 11 and 12. I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Jesus is speaking to the paralytic. And what happens? The paralytic got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praise God saying, we have never seen anything like this. In what vital ways, in what essential ways can Jesus set me free? Will Jesus set me free? Number one, I can be free to answer the deep questions. I can be free to, to answer the deep questions. The truth is we don't even know how to ask the deep questions. We had a house in Amarillo, Texas before we moved back to California. 
And this house had a, a finished patio in the back. It used to be a sunroom, and somebody had, had finished it out and put four skylights. It was a beautiful room. We moved into the house, and, and our daughter said, I'd really like to make that my bedroom. And we gave her that as a bedroom, and she went in there, and immediately the next day came in. And she said, Dad, the room's great except for one thing. The skylight leaks. I said, not a problem. I can fix this. I went up and got on the roof, and I thought, well, that's kind of an interesting way they put the roof on. But I, I found out which skylight it was, and I got me a gallon of that black goop that you get at, you know, Lowe's or whatever. And I just tarred all the way around that, and it didn't leak anymore. And a little while later, she said, the other skylight's leaking. So I, there were four. I, I used four gallons of stuff. I sealed up those skylights. When we got ready to, to sell the house, they had an inspection, and the guy came to me, and he said, the roof didn't pass, the, the roof over that finished back part. I said, what do you mean it didn't pass? It doesn't leak. And he said, some moron went up there with four gallons of black stuff and just, you know, just made a mess out of it. But he said, the problem was, is whoever was roofing it didn't know what they were doing because instead of lapping it down so that the first one's there and then the second one laps over it so that the water runs over it, they did it backwards. They started at the top and put them on, and then they put the, the roll roofing this way so that the water ran under the roll roofing. And they said, no matter how many gallons of black stuff, it's not going to work. And I said, yeah, those stupid morons. Who did that? <laughs> I don't even know the questions, much less the answers. You see, this man and his friends thought that they knew the question. The question was, how can we get him healed? They didn't even know the question. This man said, if I have that, if I have this healing, if I can get up and walk, if I have that, and you can fill in the blank, whatever that, that is for you, my deepest wish, if I can have my deepest wish, everything will be okay. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. Our deepest wish is not the problem. Our deepest wish is not the issue. And please get me, get me straight on this and, and, and understand this. I, I want you to understand that wanting to walk is not wrong. Wanting to be healed from a disease is not wrong. Wanting to have your finances in, in order is not wrong. Wanting the things that you want in your life are not wrong. Here's the problem. The fact that we thought that getting that deepest wish granted would heal us, would save us, that is wrong. That's the problem. Most of us want just enough help from God to, to boost us over the hump so we can get back to saving ourselves. If God will just do this one thing, if I could just get up and walk, if I could just have, my, if I could just have this job, if I could just marry this person, if my kids would just do this, if you just fill in the blank, whatever it is that you pray about, that you wish for, if you could just hit the lottery, if you could just, whatever it is, if you could just have that, and the Lord says no, the euphoria would pass. And Jesus knows we need to go deeper. Jonah is asked by God to go to preach to Nineveh. And he says, they won't respond. And then when they do respond, he said, I knew they would respond and I knew you would change your mind. And that's the problem. Look at what it says in Jonah chapter 2, verse 3. When Jonah's in the midst of this, the belly of this great fish, he's at the bottom of the Mediterranean. What does he say, say to God in his prayer? You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. The 
problem with Jonah had nothing to do with Nineveh and it had nothing to do with the great fish. The problem with Jonah was his heart. Here's the second one. Not only can I be free to answer the deep questions, number two, I can be free to recover my identity in Christ. You know what this paralytic's name was? We have no idea. The widow in Zarephath, we don't know her name. In John chapter 9, there's a man who was born blind, and we don't know his name. In John 9, 25, one of the the most well-known phrases at all, John 9, 25, it's going to be right here. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. All we know about the blind man, he was blind from birth. Jesus healed him, and he came, and he recognized who Jesus was eventually and came to know him as Lord and Savior. What's your identity built on? What's your, if, if we asked your closest friend to write down a phrase, to write down a sentence that would, that would define, that would describe your identity, what would they say about you? If it was your spouse, if it was your kids, what's your identity built on? Cynthia Heimel uh, writes for a place called The Village Voice, not a paper that I regularly read, but she wrote an article that I thought was fascinating. She got to know a lot of the starlets, the people who wanted to be on Broadway, the people who wanted to, to make it big in the entertainment industry. And she said, you know, they, they were typical people. They were, they were struggling actors and actresses, and they would work any job. They were waiters or they were, they were servers. They, were, they would punch tickets at the theaters. They would do whatever it took to, to try to get the job. And, and they were, she described them in, in several different ways. But one of the things she says, if only I could make it, they would say to her, if only I could make it in this business, if only I had this, I would be happy. She called them stressed and driven and easily upset. But here's what she found out. When they got their wish, she called them insufferable. Listen to what she says. I pity celebrities. No, I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed the morning after. Each of them became famous. They wanted to take an overdose because the giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness happened. And nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. She goes on, and this sentence really grabbed me. Get this. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants your deepest wish. I can be free to recover my identity. We don't have to build our identity on something else, on some goal, on some deep wish. We can build it only on Jesus Christ. We don't have to say, if, if, if I just have that, I'll be okay. It's not going to save you from oblivion, mediocrity. The truth is, if we get to the point where that wish is so deeply ingrained in us that that's all we want for, we've made it our Savior. We would never call it that, but it's really what it is. It could be your occupation. It could be a relationship. It could be a legitimate need. It could be healing from something that you really need to be healed from, but you need to be careful. Timothy Keller wrote it this way, Jesus not only wants to grant our true deepest wish, he wants to fulfill it with himself. And here's the last one, I can be free to step out in faith. I can be free to step out in faith. What does Jesus say? Get up, take a step. Do you understand that? He just, it's very simple. 
just get up, just follow me, just go home, just for a man who's been paralyzed from the neck down, we don't know how long, but long enough that he has to have people carrying him around, long enough that his friends who love him dearly are willing to do whatever it takes to get him to Jesus, long enough that his body has atrophied, long enough that there's no physical way for him to get up. And Jesus has said the same thing to us. He said it to the disciples, Matthew chapter 4, 19, when he's talking to Peter and to James and to John and to Andrew. What does he say? Come follow me, Jesus said. Just follow me. What if the paralyzed man had never made the effort to stand up? What if, what if the paralyzed man had never moved? What if he'd never tried to see if his arms would move? What if he had never picked up the mat? Well, the people were amazed at this. Those atrophied muscles, the ligaments suddenly were pliable and healthy and restored. Knees and hips that, that should have been stiff, they should have been frozen from disuse. They, they, it was impossible that they would be fully functional. Ankles that should not have been able to support his weight, to carry his weight, because of all the time that they had been in the wrong position, without the proper blood flow, without all of those things that he needed to happen, there was no way for him to walk, and he walked. And, and there's so many times that we look at this, and we look at that miracle, and we think, oh, that was such an incredible miracle. And it was. It was almost as good as the real miracle, which was to save him from eternity. An eternity separated from God. C.S. Lewis wrote a book. I, just, I love C.S. Lewis. Sorry, if you get tired of C.S. Lewis, I'll pray for you. It's not that I'm going to change, but I'll pray for you. He, he wrote uh, one of the books he wrote, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. In there, there's a boy by the name of Eustace. He hates everybody. Everybody hates him. He's obnoxious. He's just, he's selfish. He's mean. Nobody can get along with him. He's on the dawn treader. He doesn't find out exactly how he's on there. Kind of magically just appears. And the boat pulls into an island and he goes into a cave. And inside this cave are all these rubies and diamonds. And, and because he's always hated people and people have hated him, he says, ah. I'll use all this money to get back at everybody who's always been mean to me. I'm going to use this money. I'll get them back. And he falls asleep on the diamonds and the rubies and the gold and the silver and all this stuff. He doesn't realize it's a dragon's lair. And because he has dragon-like thoughts, when he wakes up, he is a dragon. He's, he's encrusted. He's still used to this inside, but on the outside, he looks like this big, huge dragon. He's terrible and ugly. He knows he's going to be horrible in all the rest of his life, and he falls into despair. And about that time, Aslan, the lion Aslan, the picture of Jesus, shows up. And leads, Jesus leads him to this clear pool of water, and he says to, to Eustace, he says, I want you to, to take off your clothes, to undress. And Eustace realized that at first he's, he's, he says, I don't have any clothes on, I'm a dragon. He realized that means he wants to, him to shed his skin, and he realizes by scratching and itching, all of a sudden he begins to literally pull the skin off, and, and he does it, and, and, but under the skin there's another dragon skin, and, and so he begins to do it again, begins to peel away, and, and another skin comes off, and, and it's still there's another dragon skin underneath it, and the third time he does it, and, and he looks at Aslan, and he says, what do I do? Where can I go? How is there help for me? And Aslan says, you're going to have to let me go deeper. Here's a quote from the book. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. 
but I was pretty now, uh, nearly desperate now. The very first terror he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than all the others had been. Then he caught hold of me and he, and he threw me in the water and it smarted like anything. And, but only for a moment. And then I saw the king had turned me into the boy I'd always supposed to be. One day, I came to the king. And I said, I can't do this. And I'm despaired. And he ripped deeper than I ever thought. And he made me into the man he'd always intended me to be. And he offers you that same freedom today. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, thank you for freedom. It's a freedom that goes beyond anything that we can imagine, anything that we can describe. And because of Jesus' freedom, fully man, fully God, never sin. He became sin for us, Father, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So thank you for that. And Father, forgive us for the times that we've just tried to be better. We've just tried to be good. We've just tried to get you to get us over the hump so we can start saving ourselves again. And today I come again saying, I need freedom. And you're the only one who can give it to me. So tear the dragon out of us. Heal us from the inside out. Make us truly free. Because we can't do it on our own. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to say anybody that would like to come and have us make a spiritual decision, you can come and sit on one of the front rows here. We're going to stand together. We're going to sing this song. Listen to the words as we sing this. It's all of you is more than enough.